Good. Amen. Amen. Good evening, everyone. If you could grab your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 13. As Chris said, we're going to be in the second half of Mark 13, beginning in verse 24. We're going to go through the rest of the chapter through verse 37. Um, every December 31st, kids across the country are all united around one single goal for one evening, and that goal is to stay awake. You have to stay awake until midnight. You, you probably all experienced this at some point in your life where you were a child and you were anticipating that, that midnight moment come New Year's Eve. Whether you wanted to see the ball drop in Times Square or you wanted to see fireworks or in my family's tradition, um, on a street in Philadelphia, I banged pots and pans together at midnight. That was what we did. I don't know if anybody else did that, but that's what we did. For some reason, six years old, I'm out there at midnight with a bunch of crazy people at some random street in Philly, banging pots together. Um, that was my tradition, but, but if I didn't stay awake, I missed it. If I didn't stay awake, I, I didn't get to experience what that, what that event was. So that whole day, you're, you're anticipating what's coming. You're anticipating this, this event of banging pots and pans together, and, and for a young child, six, seven, eight years old, you're, you're struggling through that process to stay awake. You don't want to fall asleep. Jesus in Mark 13 is going to make the point that when it comes to his future kingdom, when it comes to his return, what he has for us, the challenge for us, is to stay awake. He doesn't want us falling asleep as we anticipate the future coming of Jesus. And that, that's really the thrust of the chapter. That's really the main point of what he's trying to drive home. And we'll see that in the, the last few verses of Mark chapter 13 is, is Jesus wants us to know, stay awake. Don't fall asleep. We have to do some, some theological housekeeping, though, before we can really jump into the, the verses. Because Chris said we, we do have a difference. We disagree on this. Um, it is one of the most challenging chapters in the entire book of Mark. It's, it's biblical prophecy, so it, there's interpretive challenges that, that don't align to normal biblical narrative. It's biblical prophecy within biblical narrative, which makes it even more challenging to interpret and understand what the writer Mark and what Jesus, the speaker, are trying to say. And as, as Chris said, I'll throw my cards on the table, we disagree. I am a premillennialist. He is an amillennialist. But hopefully, as we go through some of these specifics and details, you'll see that that's okay, that we differ. You see that it's, it's all right that we differ, mostly because of the, the, the primary or lack of primary position that eschatology has in our lives. Um, without getting into too many details, and, and I don't want to do that. I don't want this to just be a seminary course on eschatology. I promised Jackie that I was not going to make this too confusing. So I will try not to do that. Hopefully I succeed. Um, but what I, what, I want to, what I want to do briefly is just explain the different views, talk about them, and then if you have questions afterwards, you want to talk with me, let's talk, let's hash some things out. If you want to go study on your own, go study on your own. That's my goal. I, I don't want to answer all the questions. I don't want to necessarily convince everyone here to be premillennial, although I'm pretty close with Chris. I'm almost there. Um, I thought I was going to be there last week, but he, he, uh, he went a different direction on me. Um, so let's just start with the very basics of it, eschatology, that word. You may not be familiar with it. It's a theological word that, that literally just means the study of last things, the study of end times. 
This is a part of theology that focuses on, really, how does this whole thing end? How does, how does the world that we're living in, how does this age, how does, how does everything going on, how does it come to a conclusion? How does it come to a culmination? Depending on your theological tra- tradition, if you grew up in the tradition that I grew up in, I should have put one in the slides, but I didn't, you would have seen some form of an end times chart, an end times graph, a timeline with, with different pictures of dragons and, and all these different images, seven-headed dragons with ten crowns and all these different things. Um, that's the tradition that I grew up in that, that made all these charts and timelines. So, so that may give you some familiarity with, hey, I, I remember seeing that in the past. That, that's what we're talking about. Eschatology is all these things of how this ends. And it basically takes Old Testament prophecy, some New Testament texts like Mark 13, and then the book of Revelation and tries to piece all these things together to make an understanding of how, how does this whole thing come to a conclusion. Related to Mark 13, there's a, there's a few theological points that we need to make. The first, Chris affirmed this last week, is that the, the book of Mark chapter 13, at least through verse 23, are all dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem. AD 70. Rome comes in, they destroy Jerusalem, they destroy the temple. So the, the wars, the rumors of wars, the natural disasters, the abomination of desolation, everything we talked about last week finds its fulfillment in AD 70. The position I take is that the events of this chapter, specifically the, later, the latter half of this chapter, actually point to future events. So it's not all fulfilled within AD 70. That the AD 70 is somewhat of a precursor to something in the future that we'll look at. So all, all these things take place as part of a future coming kingdom of God. The, these two views of this chapter lead us to three really theological positions. Um, they all involve this term millennium. Millennium literally, literally means thousand years. Um, there, there's nothing fancy about the term. It literally just means thousand years. Um, and the three different views that we're going to look at very briefly are all just how do you interpret Revelation 20, 1 through 4? It's essentially what it all bre- breaks down to. How do you interpret those four verses? Um, the first position is known as, can't really see that too well, but it's known as postmillennialism. Um, basically, postmillennialism argues that, that due to the expansion of the church, due to the spread of the gospel, um, things in this world will continue to get better and better, essentially. Um, it will lead right into a millennium, like a golden age of sorts, where, where there's Christian ethics and Christian morals that are dominating the world, and then the spread of the gospel is going out. And then so the following this time of this golden age, Christ returns, then there's the new heaven and the new earth, and so, so literally post-millennium is after the millennium. That's, that's the understanding of that. Um, to give you a frame of reference for anyone you're reading, most Puritans were post-millennialists. Actually, most theologians up to around World War I were post-millennialists. The reason they changed their minds is because World War I happened. They're like, oh, well, I guess the world's not actually getting too much better. Um, the second view is amillennialism. Um, amillennialism teaches that the, the millennium is, is this undetermined amount of time. Like, we're in the millennium right now. And, and Jesus is already ruling and reigning as king, so the millennium's now, and Jesus' future return will be at some point in time in the future, we don't know when, and that there is, there is a, his future return will basically culminate the whole world. There's the, the new heaven and the new earth, the destruction of his enemies, and so on, as you would read in Revelation. Um, popular amillennialist, at least in our generation, R.C. Sproul. If you're familiar with reading anything from R.C. Sproul, he was probably one of the more popular amillennialists out there. 
Final position, premillennialism, which I stated that I hold to, teaches that Jesus will return before the millennial, before the millennium, in a literal return. So there's a literal, physical return of Jesus to earth to establish a kingdom, a literal kingdom, where he will rule and reign on the earth. Um, this is the, as I said, this is a third view that, that I espouse. This is the position I take. Um, and I think I'm in relatively good company. If you're familiar with John Piper, Don Carson, they hold two premillennial views. Someone you may not be as familiar with, a guy named Polycarp, um, disciple of the Apostle John who wrote the book of Revelation. So you could say the Apostle John taught Polycarp premillennialism, and then I would win my argument with Chris, but we won't go there. Um, so those are the three views. Essentially, that's, that's how it all breaks down. So, so does that mean also that then I would say none of this pertains to 8070? Like everything Chris taught last week is just trash? No, I don't, I don't believe that. I, I do think that there is a dual fulfillment that's happening here. The, the position I take is that there is, there is something Jesus is talking about through chapter 13, especially the first 18 verses or so, 5 to 23, that section is specific to 8070. But there's a dual fulfillment. And I'll, I'll use an example, hopefully, to help us understand how all of this works. Like, how is this, how is this interpreted? How do we do this? Um, consider you're driving down the Pennsylvania Turnpike. You're heading out to Philly. And as you're driving, you see off in the distance a hill, a mountain. And, and you see that, and, and from, a, from a distance, it looks like, you know, these are, these are two mountains that are kind of all one in a way, like they look very close to each other, if not the same exact mountain, from a distance. And then as you get closer to this, you realize, oh, well, these are, these are very far away. There, there's a mountain here, and there's a mountain here, and, and so the, the different perspective allows us to see that there's, there's two different things going on. There's two different mountains. So in the, in the same way, as we think about biblical prophecy, oftentimes dual fulfillment works in that manner. So, so as you're approaching something and you're far off, it looks like it's all the same event or, or very closely associated, but then as you get closer to it, you realize, oh, well, these are, these are actually two different things. There's a different perspective to take. And so that, that's what I do believe is happening in Mark 13, that there's a dual fulfillment going on, that Jesus is talking about. What he's talking about does happen in AD 70. That's absolutely clear, but it's a precursor for something that happens in the future. So, you know what I believe, you know the different positions. Again, if you want to talk about this more, please let me know. One thing I want to do, though, before we jump into the actual text of Mark 13, is to think about three different concepts as it relates to these, these theological positions. Um, the first one we've already talked about a little bit is good Christians differ on this. Good Christians differ on this, and, and that's okay. I still have profound respect and admiration and love for Chris, even though we disagree. Um, I still call him my brother. Anybody who doesn't believe in premillennialism, I still love you. So when we talk about and frame this conversation, let's do so in a manner that is not marked by arrogance, that is not marked by pride. Let's do so in a manner that's marked by humility and grace and love, knowing that we might be wrong. I might be wrong. I, I could be wrong in this. And, and that's okay. So when we're having these conversations, as we dig into this, recognize none of this is certain. We, we don't know. Only one person knows, and that's God the Father. Second, we differ because this is not a primary point of doctrine. 
Our difference on this does not mean that I believe Chris denies the gospel or Chris believes I deny the gospel. There's a, there's a huge difference between eschatology and the doctrine of the deity of Christ, which is Jesus is God. There's a difference between eschatology and the, the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. That means the Bible in its originals is perfect without error. There's a difference between eschatology and our understanding of justification by faith, that we are declared righteous by God through faith in the blood, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So believing differently about the timing of the return of Jesus does not mean we differ on the gospel. What's important about eschatology is that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is returning, and in in whatever way he does, he is defeating his enemies and establishing his kingdom. And if we are part of his kingdom now, we will be part of his kingdom in the future. And as we'll see, he's bringing with him his elect to rule and reign with him forever. That is what we need to understand and believe about eschatology. So if we, if we have that part of it right, any conversation we have about this, let's be civil. Let's be, let's be gracious about it. Let's avoid elevating non-primary things to a primary position. Because oftentimes what it does is it leads to a lot of arrogance. It leads to, to a lot of ways where we fall into this trap where there, there's no grace there's little room for grace. There's little room for any type of humility. You know, each of us has our pet issue. Each of us has our thing that we, we really get amped up about, that we really get aggressive about, that we really feel strongly about. And so when someone disagrees with us, we, we become animated, we become aggressive. And the, the challenge for us within all of that is to be discerning, to, to compare what that thing is that we're getting hyped up about Compare it to the gospel and say, is this a core, central gospel issue? And if it's not, let's, let's have grace. Let's, let's change our attitude around that, and let's change our hearts to reflect the reality that this is not a primary issue. Or whatever it is outside of eschatology that we, we have elevated to a primary issue is not primary. And so there can be disagreement, and in that disagreement, there can be humility and grace. Third thing. It's good to study these things. I would encourage you to. But don't be consumed by them. If, if you're new to your faith, if you're, if you're in the beginning stages of discipleship, if you're in the beginning stages of your faith, my encouragement to you is not to run to eschatology. Don't, don't go there. If you're really interested in theology, run to the doctrines of soteriology, the doctrines of salvation. Run to the cross to really learn and grow. Do not run to eschatology. For all of us old, new believers, we've been a Christian for a long time, we haven't been a Christian for a long time, we should avoid trying to fall into this spiral of trying to figure out every detail of what's happening with this. It's a, it's a huge temptation for people. Huge temptation for people there, there, there are records of people who, who spend their whole lives just digging into this and trying to figure out all the details and then predict how it's going to happen and what's going to happen. And so then when their prediction actually turns out to be wrong, it, they look back and they've ruined years and years and years of their lives. They've wasted years of their lives spent on trying to discern what they shouldn't have discerned. And, and we'll see later in the chapter, Jesus himself doesn't even know when this will happen. He says, only the Father knows. 
And he doesn't, he doesn't then say, so then you guys go figure it out. That's not his response. He says, the father doesn't know, so stay awake. But he doesn't seem consumed by it. He doesn't seem overly interested in trying to figure out all the details, and, and so neither should we. So all that's aside, we're going to jump in now to the actual text. Mark 13, verses 24. And we'll, we'll be going 24 to 37, but we'll do 24 to, through 27 to begin with. What I want us to do tonight is, is walk through some of the details. So understand what the text is trying to say, and then hopefully our goal at the end will be we see how this all connects in a bigger picture to Old Testament text and a New Testament text, and then ultimately see how all of this actually connects within the framework of Mark to the cross. So that's our goal for tonight. We're going to go through some details, see how it connects to broader things, and then see how it connects to ultimately the cross. Verses 24 to 27 says, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds of the earth, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. We see verse 24 begins with a, with a transition word. It's a connecting word translated for us, but. It, it's, a, it's a word that's used oftentimes in Scripture as a, as a connection but a contrast. It's like saying, I'm talking about A over here, but now I'm going to start talking about B over here. It's one of the reasons why I do take the position I do is because I think in this verse there's a slight transition that Jesus makes. Where he's saying, I, I was talking about destruction in Jerusalem, but now I'm going to move on to something slightly different. Something slightly different than what I was talking about before. So I'm talking about Jerusalem, destruction of the temple, but in those days, transition, talking about future end times events, the future coming of Jesus. I, I think that's what he's doing here. I think that that word is very specific. He's, he's not necessarily continuing the discussion in the same way to say these are the same things. He's saying Jerusalem, but now something different. Jesus continues to use phrases that are very common for Old very common in the Old Testament for eschatological type of language. He uses the phrase in those days. This is a common phrase to refer to the second coming of Jesus. Um, we have multiple examples from the book of Joel. So just to touch on the book of Joel real quick, Joel deals extensively with this idea of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord being a future coming of Jesus in judgment, coming to reign as king, the day of the Lord. He deals heavily with this. So we'll look at Joel 3.1. And we're looking specifically for that phrase, in those days. Joel 3.1, talking about the day of the Lord. For behold, in those days, at that time, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Jeremiah 3.16, he's speaking again about this idea of the end of days. He says, and when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. So they're, they're talking about this idea of the day of the Lord. They're talking about end times, and they're using this phrase, in those days. So I think there's a connection between what Jesus is saying when he says, but in those days, with a lot of these Old Testament prophecies, a lot of these Old Testament texts that are pointing us to future end times events. There's countless other verses we could read, but, but that's really the point. He's, he's pointing to something in the future. We go back to see verse 
24 to 27, and you see that there are additional, there's cosmic activities, the, the darkened sun and, and the moon, stars falling, the powers of heaven shaken. Again, we look at Old Testament texts and Old Testament prophecies, and, and they're using that type of similar language to describe what will take place in an end times event. Old Testament language is saturated with it. We'll go to Joel chapter 2, verses 10 and verse 31. It says, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, the stars withdraw their shining. Verse 31, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So so Joel, Old Testament texts are using this cosmic language, this cosmic activity, to point to something in the future. Quick aside, this does not need to be taken literally. I think there's room within this discussion to say this is metaphorical language. The language that Mark uses, the language that Joel uses, it doesn't literally mean that the moon will turn to blood. That, that may not literally happen. It's, it's probably metaphorical. It's probably um, not a literal thing that will take place. There, there's room for that. And so really the, the overlying message, what's trying to be conveyed is that there's a future event coming, something will take place, and it's going to be marked by some element of cosmic activity. We don't understand all the different pieces of it. If we go back again to verse 26, we see the ultimate cosmic event take place. It says the Son of Man will come in power. The Son of Man, Jesus, he's already used this term multiple times throughout the book of Mark to refer to Jesus. This this Son of Man will come in power and in glory in a visible way. And it it even says that they will see the Son of Man coming. So there's there's a physical nature to his return. This is the promised king that we've been looking at for the first 12 chapters of Mark, who now Jesus is saying in Mark 13, this king is going to come back someday. When you come to verse 27, we we get to see why, the reason for the Son of Man to return. There are some people who believe that this is Jesus' return because he is bringing destruction on his people. He's bringing destruction on Jerusalem. Some would believe that this is actually like a vindication of Jesus. That Jesus is being vindicated in his return. I would say this. The purpose of Jesus' return, at least spelled out in Mark 13, is not so much judgment that we'll see, although that does happen. He does come in judgment. And it's not a vindication because the vindication of Jesus happens when? It happens at the cross and the resurrection. That's where Jesus is vindicated for who he is as king, as God, as Messiah. It's not so much in his second coming, in his return. So verse 27 gives us this this reason why the Son of Man returns. I wish Diane was here tonight. We were talking with her last week after our worship gathering. And she said something very wise and I think often often not considered in this discussion. And she said, and I'll, I'll paraphrase what she said, I don't know how all of this end stuff will work, but I just want Jesus to make sure I'm included. Um, verse 27 is telling us, and we should be happy to know, we are included. He will include all of those who are his elect. So at his return, Jesus is going to gather all of his people, those who have repented in faith, those who have repented and turned to God, trusted in the gospel of Jesus. He is going to gather them. And look what he says. He says, from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. So, so Jesus is saying, with that phrase, with the way he uses that, that terminology, he's saying, no one's going to be left out. 
I'm not going to miss any of you. Those of you who are my elect, those of you who are my chosen, those of you who are my people, you will not be missed. I think it's important for us to consider that. You know, if we, if we ended our time now and just sat on that, it would be a wonderful truth to rest in that as we are chosen in Christ, as we are his people, we are his elect, we are his, he's not going to forget us. He's not going to leave us out. Because the reality is, he, he has elected us, he has chosen us, he has saved us through Christ, and that means that we are his. We are his children. He has, he has called us out of sin into righteousness, out of darkness into light, out of death into life. He's granted us this through Christ that we would be his children, that we would be his sons and daughters adopted through the blood of Jesus. So he's not going to let any of us miss this. He's not going to forget any of us. We can rest in that truth. And because of that reality, the the return of Jesus should bring about in our lives some level of anticipation, some level of joy, some level of hope. Titus 2.13, Paul puts it this way, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've looked at 12 chapters now of Jesus coming, and, and what has it been marked by? It's been marked by his power on display. It's been marked by him casting out demons, healing people, doing these incredible things gathering people to himself, a people that he would call his, namely his disciples, but, but others as well that he's called to himself. That's his first coming. That's what we've seen all through Mark 12. And so Mark 13, we're seeing he's going to do the same thing when he comes again. He's coming in power. He's coming in glory. Great, cosmic, divine things are going to happen. And he's gathering to himself a people. As we go to... Another lesson from the fig tree, verses 28 to 31. You'll recall chapter 11, Jesus talks about a fig tree, and he uses a fig tree as a a foreshadowing of a future event. He uses a fig tree to talk about the fact that his people, Israel, have not fulfilled their covenant promises. They have not fulfilled their end of this covenant, and so the temple would be destroyed. And so he, he gives this example of the fig tree, and he does so in the framework of the cursing of the temple. Then he cleanses the temple as we saw in chapter 11. Here I think Jesus is using the fig tree again as another example of pointing to something in the future. So he's telling his disciples, he says, you know, when you see a fig tree grow its leaves, you know what time of year it is. You know that it's summertime. Just the same thing, when you see these things happen, you know that he is near. These things refers back to, I believe, verse 4. It's actually tied to the disciples' original question, when will these things be? When will these things take place? When will these things be and what will be the sign of all of these things? It refers back to the events of the chapter. So you're going to see natural disasters, people claiming to be Christ. You're going to see cosmic activity. And and when these things happen, you'll know that he is near. Who's he? Verse 26 tells us it's the Son of Man coming in power. The Son of Man coming in the clouds. So just as you know, when summer is near because of the the blossoming of this fig tree, so too you will know when the Son of Man is near because all these events, all these things are taking place. 
All these things take place, Jesus says, before this generation passes away. That's verse, verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. Jesus adds some validity to this. You see verse 31, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You know, Mark does this throughout his gospel. I, I hope we've caught on to it as we've gone through this. He, he, does these, he does these little things with these brief little snippets that maybe aren't the main point of what he's trying to convey or what he's trying to talk about, but there's these brief little things that he, he drops in for us that give us overwhelming confidence in who Jesus is. So when Jesus says this phrase, my words will not pass away, what we can look back to is 12 chapters worth of evidence to suggest that Jesus is the one with authority to say, my words will not pass away even if heaven and earth pass away. It points us to say, as he says these words, that that he is authoritative as king, as God. It's by means of his position as God and by means of his position as king. And it's by means of his position as the one who came to sacrifice himself and the one who will come again in power where he can say and guarantee that these things will happen because of my word. It points to the faithfulness of Jesus. It points to the faithfulness of God saying that he can be trusted. Mark does this throughout his text, and I hope we've picked up on it and, and we'll continue to pick up on it. We do have to deal with this phrase in verse 30, though, this generation. Uh, some attempt to do gymnastics with this phrase. They're, they're going to try to say, well, it's talking about the generation that's going to be alive when Jesus comes again sometime in the future. Um, I don't think we need to do that. I think ultimately the phrase needs to be taken as its face value, what it should be. It's, it's talking about the disciples' generation. It's talking about the generation that Jesus is speaking to. So he's saying all of these things will happen before the generation of the disciples will fall away, will, will pass away. And ultimately that happens in AD 70. It happens with the destruction of Jerusalem. So verse 5 through 23, the destruction of Jerusalem will occur before this generation passes away. So then the question ultimately comes from people that say, well, well then Jesus is wrong about something. He's made a mistake somewhere. Because he obviously says the Son of Man's going to come, but the Son of Man hasn't come. So Jesus must be mistaken somehow. Jesus must have made a mistake. Um, I think when we look closely at the text, there's nothing in this passage to suggest that Jesus' return has to happen before this generation dies, dies away, passes away. I think what the text is actually saying is that Jesus' return won't happen before all of these things happen. So if, if we're talking about verses 5 through 23, find their fulfillment in AD 70, what Jesus is saying is, my return won't happen in AD 60. It's not going to happen before these events take place in AD 70. But there's nothing to suggest that says Jesus' return has to happen before AD 70 or in the time frame of AD 70. I think Don, Don Carson puts it this way, and I agree with him. He says, if our interpretation of this chapter is right, all that this phrase demands is that the distresses of verse 5 through 23, including Jerusalem's fall, have to happen within the lifetime of the generation that's living. It doesn't mean that these distresses must end within that time, but only that these things must happen within it. Therefore, verse 30 sets the starting point for the second coming. 
but it's not the ending point to the distresses because the distresses will not end until the second coming happens itself. So I think what, what he's saying there also ultimately is the AD 70 kind of starts the clock, so to speak. It begins the time frame to say, here's the start of this end times where Jesus could come at any moment after this. But he doesn't need to, ha- it does, he doesn't need to come with all of these things happening when this, before this generation passes away. We go on and see further that it's, it's emphasized, I think, in verse 32. I guess I forgot to put it in there. You're going to have to believe me or read your Bibles. I'm sorry, I forgot to put it in the slide. Verse 32, it says, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. I, I, I think that's intentional on Jesus' part. He's saying no one knows these things. No one knows what's actually going to happen except for the Father. He, th- this points to really Jesus voluntarily giving up some element of his attributes. This, this aligns perfectly with Philippians chapter 2 where it says that Jesus emptied of himself. He, he never thought equality with God was a thing to be grasped. He never considered himself not equal with the Father, but he voluntarily gave up some element of his attributes when he became a man. So he says only the Father knows these things. I think this is, this is reason number one, to go back a little bit, this is reason number one of many that we could give that we shouldn't be consumed with this stuff. We shouldn't be consuming ourselves with following the signs to see when Jesus will return because Jesus himself doesn't know and he never invites us to figure it out. On the contrary, what does he tell us to do? He tells us to watch. Verse 33, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when that time will come. That's his challenge for us when it comes to this whole discussion of eschatology. Be on guard, watch. He gives an example where he says it's like a master who goes away for a time. And he puts his servants in charge and he, he tells them to do certain things. And then he tells to the doorkeeper, he says, keep watch. Be alert, be awake to what's happening because I can come back at any point in time. The reason Jesus provides us with chapter 13 and the discussion of eschatology that we've been having tonight is that he doesn't want us to figure out all the details and argue over whether the timing of the return will be this or the timing of the return will be that. He simply wants us to watch and be alert. Not to be frantic, though. It's not a matter of being frantic and running around like we have to accomplish all of these things before Jesus returns. It's a watch and it's a hope of anticipation for what will come. He doesn't want us frantic searching for the end and then when we think we're running out of time, we have to do something fulfilling in life. We have to meet something that we were really hoping we did because we have to get all these things in before Jesus comes back and ruins all of our fun. That's not the purpose of all of this. If you've, if you've seen the musical Hamilton, probably if anybody has Disney+, Plus, you've probably seen it at this point. It's like international phenomenon. If you've seen it, it's done very well. I would encourage you to watch it. If you haven't seen it, I'm going to give a little bit of a spoiler, but the story is about 250 years old, so I don't feel bad about that. Like, if you don't know the story about Alexander Hamilton yet, that's not my problem. In the storyline, one of the themes that's traced through this is that, that Alexander Hamilton is running out of time. 
that he's frantic. He's writing and he's writing and he's doing all of these different things, working for the birth of a new nation. He, and he does it to the detriment of his marriage. He does it to the detriment of his friends. He does it to the detriment of his family. That, that's one of these things that he's running out of time and so he's frantic. He's doing as much as much as he can because he doesn't know what tomorrow will bring. He doesn't know what's going to happen, so he's doing all this stuff. Jesus doesn't want us frantic and searching for the end, not knowing what will happen. And so we're just trying to do something to seek satisfaction in life while we, while we see, and, and see and anticipate a future return of Jesus. That, that's not what he's trying to do. And you could say, well, time's short. Life isn't very long. We have, to, we have to do as much as we can and pursue as much as we can so that we accomplish much here. And oftentimes, a challenge for myself is that what I'm pursuing is what I want. And what I'm pursuing is not, as we'll see in a little bit, things that are above and things that are aligned with Christ, but they're things that are aligned with myself and what is on this earth. The question we should be asking when we get into these conversations of pursuing things here because we're running out of time and, and we don't know when the end will be, the question should be, how are we doing with pursuing Jesus? How are we doing with, with sacrificing of ourselves to love our spouses, to love our children, to love our families? The reason he tells us to stay awake and alert to the ever-present reality in our lives that he, is going to, that he is going to come is that he doesn't want us sleeping. And the sleeping idea is, is spiritual. He doesn't want us falling asleep in the sense that we fall away from our faith. And in falling away from our faith, we reveal to ourselves, we reveal to our church, and we reveal to, our wor- to the world that we never took part in this faith to begin with. That's what Jesus wants us to avoid. Hebrews 3 puts it this way. Some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The greatest danger we face in life is unbelief. The only thing to fear other than God is fear that our hearts are full of unbelief. What we should fear other than fearing God is that Jesus does return, and instead of finding us awake, he finds us asleep. That should scare us. Not in, not in an intimidating way, not in a way where we are, we are frightened as though a, a father is going to come beat us up, but we should be afraid that, that as, we, as we move into this life, as we go through this life, and Jesus returns, he finds us sleeping. And that means that we've never had faith. That, that this whole thing we're doing is just a charade. Our prayer each day for our own hearts should be, God, continue to give me ears to hear, eyes that see, and a heart that believes. As we, as we think through and live out Hebrews 3.13, our prayer for one another, your prayer for me, my prayer for you, should be God continue to give them ears to hear, eyes that see, and hearts that believe. 
Another interesting question for us is, are we content to be, quote, awake? If that means we're doing the routine things in life, reading scripture, praying, loving our, loving our families and pursuing a relationship with God, the, the routine, seemingly mundane things in life, are we content if that's what being awake and staying awake and being alert means for us? I want our close. I have about five minutes. I'll probably go a couple minutes over. Apologize for that. I want to close in our last minutes by making some larger connections for us. We're not going to look at all these verses just because of the, the nature of, of what they are. They're long chapters of Scripture. So we're not going to dig into every one of them in detail. You know, we've examined specific details of Mark 13. We, we've hopefully understood a bit more about what's going on with it. But I want us to see this bigger picture of how Old Testament has continuity with New Testament. How, how there's this bigger redemptive history picture. And then ultimately, let's connect to the cross. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 3, and in the chapter 15 in the book of Genesis, God covenants with Abraham, and he tells him this, that God will make Abraham into a great nation that will bless all the nations of the earth. Fast forward to Exodus chapter 19 and chapter 20, God covenants with Israel, the descendants of Abraham, and he, in a partial fulfillment of, this, of his covenant with Abraham, he makes them his representative on the earth. They will showcase God to the world and they will bless the nations. You move forward to 2 Samuel chapter 7, 4 through 17. God covenants with David and promises David a kingdom and a throne that will last forever. We then come to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 and 15. He is the true, the perfect blessing to the nations. In fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant, Exodus 19 and 20, he is the rightful, perfect representative of God. He's the one true Israelite. As fulfillment of the Davidic Covenant, he is the ultimate king who rules and reigns for eternity. Isaiah chapter 9 puts it this way. Well, I guess I left that out too. My apologies for that. Isaiah chapter 9 puts it this way. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. So the blessing of the nation, the true Israelite, the ultimate king is going to come back one day to defeat his enemies and establish his kingdom once and for all. So he gathers to himself all those who will be saved by the blood of the cross to rule and reign with him forever. So, so the, the king that we have been reading about all of Mark chapter Mark chapter 1 through chapter 12 and here in Mark 13 is the same king that that fulfills all of what we just looked at Genesis 12 Genesis 15 Exodus 19 and 20 second Samuel 7 that that fulfillment is all found in one person Jesus Christ but I do think this section of chapter 13 and I did see it in here right here I do think this chapter, this section of chapter 13 actually does point us, it, it bridges us to chapter 14 and 15. Chapter 14 and 15 is the, the crucifixion story. It's Jesus' trial. It's Jesus' crucifixion. And I think it does draw us to ultimately the cross. Look at verses 35 and 36. I've highlighted a few words for us. It says, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, whether in the evening or at midnight when the rooster crows or in the morning, pay attention to these words, lest he come suddenly 
and finds you sleeping. Mark chapter 14, verses 17 to 18 says, When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and they were reclining at table and eating. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me, when it was evening. Remember what we looked at in Mark 13, when it was evening. I think we can almost see this as, as an element of an abomination. Mark 14, 21, Woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Jesus tells them in, in Mark 14, 30 that, the, that when the rooster crows, they will deny him. Peter will deny him, but, but Peter says, no, 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 I'm going to certainly stay awake. I will absolutely stay awake. I won't deny you. Remember what chapter 13 said, don't let the master come and find you sleeping. Mark 14, 34 to 41, I think is the closest connection we can see. In this story, you see Jesus has gone to the garden and he's, he's going to pray and he tells his disciples to, to stay. He tells his disciples to stay and watch. It says, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch and go a little farther. He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Get not, not what I will but what you will. So he, he is in anguish praying to the Father. Notice what he says. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, you are asleep. Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. In that very next verse, Judas comes and betrays the Son of Man, handing him over to those who would eventually kill him. So hopefully you're starting to see some of these connections between Mark 13 and Mark 14. Mark 13 talks about how when, when difficulty comes, everyone will run away. Mark 14.50, talking of Jesus, when difficulty comes, they all left him and fled. Peter, who, remember, he, he would definitely stay awake. He's never going to deny the Father. He sits in a courtyard, is questioned three times about his relationship with Jesus, and with the strongest way possible that he could, he denies ever even knowing him. So we see Mark 14, 72, and immediately the rooster crowed. The master may return when the rooster crows. So stay awake. Don't be asleep. Mark 15, 1, in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders. So, so the chief priest delivered Jesus to Pilate after a trial, and we know the rest of the story. Though being innocent, he was declared guilty Though he was free of sin, he is beaten, he is mocked, he is tortured, and ultimately crucified at the hands of sinful men. He endured all of that so that the true guilty ones, us, so that the true guilty ones could be declared righteous, so that we could approach God not under wrath that we deserve, but we could approach God lavished in grace, purchased by his broken body and his shed blood. The Son of Man is coming one day. But the reality is the Son of Man already came. 
And you have to ask, was anyone awake to see it? One person was. Mark 15, 39. A Roman who had just executed Jesus states what Mark has been trying to show us since the very beginning of the book. Truly, this was the Son of God. This, this is why Mark has written this gospel. It begins at the very first verse. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the whole purpose of why, why Mark wrote this very gospel. This is why Mark even includes chapter 13, the future return of Jesus. If we want to be awake when Jesus returns someday, we have to be awake to the truth that Jesus has already come. Jesus was already here. And he sacrificed his life for us. We'll finish with Paul, giving us an idea of what it means to stay awake. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. For those of us who are alive in Christ, purchased blood-bought saints of God, are we frantic in our pursuit of meaning? As though we're running out of time? Or are we pursuing satisfaction and peace in Christ? Are we pursuing a relationship with Him? Are we developing healthy patterns in our life that seek to kill sin and pursue holiness? Are we putting away anger? Are we putting away bitterness? And instead pursuing forgiveness and love? Are we awake? Or will Jesus come and find us sleeping? We're going to take communion now together this evening. So as as the men get together, they're going to pass out the juice and the crackers, and we'll, we'll sing a song, and as, as one church, we'll take communion together. If you are a Christian here tonight, I invite you to join with us. I invite you to take communion with us this evening. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Mark. Thank you for the truth of the gospel, the reality that you, a sinless, the sinless one, came and gave your life for those who were guilty, gave your life for those who were sinful. Thank you that you have already come. Thank you that you will come again. And that you have chosen to include us in your kingdom. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Amen.